join Prize Picks, America's number one fantasy sports app with more than 3 million members. You can win up to 25 times your money by picking more or less. Download the app today and use code MIB for a first deposit match of up to $100. New game day shirt, boom, cash back. Food for the tailgate, boom, cash back. Even buying a round can earn you cash back when you use your debit card with Discover Cashback Debit. Everyone can earn cash back on everyday purchases. Look, in sports, it's hard to predict who's taking the W, but you know what's a guaranteed win? Discover Cashback Debit. Oh, and did I mention there are no fees, period? I'm telling you, this one is a real game changer. Check out transaction, eligibility, and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. You're listening to the Men in Blazers Media Network, Suboptimal Radio. Balotelli! Aguero! Staggering! Just staggering! My first thought when Aguero struck him that went in the net and I shouted Aguero, was, please let that be Aguero, because that is not the one you want to get wrong. My guest today is the poet laureate of Premier League football, a gent of whom it was once written, he is the physical manifestation of his commentary, all coiled up enthusiasm and seemingly perpetually on the brink of committing a metaphor. When you think of the greatest moments in English football, it's probably his voice, which is the soundtrack that accompanies it. A poet, an orator, a footballing obsessive who's never lost the passion for the game he first experienced as a kid. And he expresses it word for word on our screens, like Walt Whitman spitting fire freestyle. Honestly, this bloke can turn a mundane clash West Ham versus Bournemouth into an experience akin to hearing Chaucer compose the Canterbury Tales in real time. It's a true joy to welcome NBC's lead Premier League commentator, Mr. Peter Drury. Roger, thank you. And West Ham Bournemouth is never mundane. (laughs) I stand corrected, Peter. You know, I read a great interview Yesterday, when I was preparing this, where you were asked to describe your job of Premier League commentator, and you simply said, it's the second best job in the world. And it is. It is. Let's face it. Anybody who loves sport, boy or girl, any generation, when they grow up, the first thing they want to be able to do is play, isn't it? That's what you'd love to be able to do. That is the ultimate dream. And if you can't, and believe me, I couldn't, uh, the next best thing is to talk about it. Um, and to have someone pay you to talk about it is absolutely phenomenal. In fact, it's broadly ridiculous. Um, and um, it's, a, it's a lovely and privileged thing to do. Another time you were asked what you do and you said, I shout out footballers' names for fun. That's also true. And, and honestly, uh, whilst I laugh about that and I love doing it and I don't apologise for it, sometimes in a sort of deep, dark moment when the lights go out and, and I have too much time to think, I, I ponder on um, the crassness of my, of, my, of my occupation, you know. I'm not teaching the next generation. I'm not putting out fires. I'm not saving the world. I'm not fighting heart disease. I'm shouting footballers' names. And that is bizarre. Sometimes I think you're the thin line that is just maintaining the fraying democratic system. It's just you, Peter Drury, between us and chaos. But take us back to the beginning. As a kid, growing up in Kent, just southeast of London, you've said that you'd commentate on your mum when she was doing the laundry. That is absolutely true. I did. I commentated on anything and everything. Those sorts of household chores, definitely. Uh, I could turn into a race. I could turn in in my head into something sort of Olympian, Uh, you know, with the shirts get done before the trousers, all of that sort of thing. That was a competition. And I I had a bedroom which looked out across a public park. Uh, And my dad, every morning, used to uh, walk up the path through the park. And I could see his journey up to the paper shop, the newspaper shop on the corner. He used to go and pick up a newspaper. And then I saw him come back down the path and... I used to commentate on him arriving at our front gate as if it was the end of a sort of 1500 metres Olympic final. A lot of kids did 
what you did and lived life and commentated as children back in England. And I know I did. When I was seven years old, I got a radio cassette player and I spent many an afternoon as a kid taping fake imaginary Everton commentary on blank cassettes. But when did it go from being fun for you to like really your childhood dream? That, that's what I want to do. Roger, I can see over your shoulder that you have got a Sabutio set. Dear listener, Sabutio, if you're wondering, is a kid's game where you flick tiny plastic men across a fake field. I spent genuinely the best part of a decade playing that, and any English fan probably did the same of our age. That is a game which I played growing up and commentated on on my own. I used to play complete World Cups and, and commentate on those by myself. And then my brothers who were older than me and they were teenagers and they lay in bed till lunchtime, they finally joined the party and I played with them all afternoon and continued to commentate. So that's probably where I did most of my practicing, really. Uh, but never, never, never did I pipe dream that it would be any sort of a living until I graduated from university. I went to be a trainee accountant. I did that for a month and I was useless. And so I packed it in. Uh, I used that month's salary to buy my wife's engagement ring. And we're still married, 33 years on. And Slick move. Slick move. So that was, that was a very good career move. But then, of course, I had to go and meet her father and ask his permission. And um, <laughs> he said, how's work going? And I said, I've packed it in because I want to be a football commentator. So that wasn't so clever. You've also said about that time as a kid that words were my best friend. Peter, were you an avid reader as a kid? Not especially, no. I've, I've been asked that before, Roger, actually, and, and I'm a bit of a philistine uh, in terms of literature. I, I've always loved words. I've always loved language. I was at a poshish kind of school where I did, you know, Latin and Greek, and I was fascinated by the makeup of words. And as you know, Latin and Greek between them make up about 90% of the English language. Salway! <laughs> Quite. <laughs> Veni, vidi, vici. Uh, and uh, all of that sort of stuff. But... I was really bored by all of the kind of Roman literature and Greek literature and all that. I couldn't be bothered that, you know, Claudius was in the marketplace and all of that sort of stuff. I, I was just interested in the words themselves. And I've always loved a crossword. I've always loved a word game. And listen, I read from time to time, but, but I, I couldn't indulge in any sort of uh, profound uh, literate conversation. The only Socrates you cared about played for Brazil. <laughs> That's so true. I'd love to have had some of his hair. <laughs> you and me both. But your dad was a preacher, Peter. Do you think you inherited any of the inherent gift of the gab, the skill sets from him? It's it's not impossible, but, you know, I, I'm more like my mum than my dad, actually, in terms of sort of gregariousness and, and preparedness to stand up and, and kind of do my thing. My dad was a very intense, learned, academic sort of a priest, and, and, you know, he used to read the New Testament in the original Greek, uh, which is a long way from my ballgame. And so I wouldn't claim even 50% of his sort of innate, natural, learned intelligence. But uh, I suppose where our sort of Venn diagram meets is that um, he liked words and I like words as well. Your entry into broadcasting, as you've said, came after university and that brief Brief, Peter Drury dips his toe into accountancy. As you said, you lost it an entire month and then decided to chase your dream. And I find this part of the story really fascinating for so many of our young listeners who are possibly in jobs that aren't fulfilling and they do yearn to chase their childhood dreams. You did. You decided, I'm going to become a commentator. Take us to that moment when you realised, perhaps as you were preparing tax audits, nah, 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 I'm going to go for this. Take us there. Where were you? Well, in all truth, that's a slightly romanticised version of it, and that's my fault. I, I've romanticised <laughs> it. It wasn't that I was pursuing the dream particularly of being a commentator, though that was a sort of subsidiary of this moment. Frankly, I couldn't bear being an accountant. The, the first penny that dropped was, I can't do this for the rest of my life. Uh, and so then I stopped and what did I want to do for the rest of my life? I fancied watching sport. So uh, I tried to find a way of doing it. And the two sort of coincided. Um, the summer after I'd left university, I had had some work. And you'll remember this, Roger, commentating on the great English game of cricket, which I also love, for a Kent cricket call, 
which was where you used to have to, to dial the sort of premium numbers and pay 40 pence a minute to, to hear people commentating on county cricket, um, which, which I did. Um, but that, again, was never likely to become sort of a, a long-term professional reality. Uh, so that that was all the experience I had. But then I did all the classic things. I, I did work experience at the local paper. I tried to get into hospital radio. I did all of those things that that people who are in their early 20s are, are still really doing now to try and get a foot in the door. Roads not taken. Peter Drury commentating on the tax-exempt bond compliances <laughs> on tax day. That That is just sliding doors. But I want to talk about your art, which is football commentary. And you've said the art of commentary is essentially to articulate the event that you're at. It's nothing more or less. Peter, you're a very modest man. You're very self-effacing. But can that really be true? Because you, you paint such emotion, Peter. You are shaping the experience for us, the viewer. You are forging it. You're searing it into our memory with your words. Well, that's that's a really kind thing to say, Roger. And I, I appreciate it. And, and part of the reason I hide from it is because I don't want to believe it's true. You know, I, I don't want it, honestly. And this, this is a terrible cliche, and I, I kind of don't mean it the way it's coming out. But I really don't want it to be about me. I really don't. And because that is, that's a skewing of reality. But the fact is that sporting events occur with or without the commentator. Great football happened before the radio and before the television. Messi scored all those goals at the World Cup, regardless of who was describing it on the television. The Premier League plays out a wonderful narrative weekend after weekend and would do even if television wasn't there. And so I'm just the lucky guy who sits and reacts when it all happens. Your philosophy about the whole world in which you move, I think is simple yet profound and bare stating You've said every game is to be relished. If you're there, it's good to be alive. I love that approach to football. I love that approach to life, Peter. Well, it's because one thing I'm not, I mean, certain people would say the fault perhaps of mine is a, is a certain almost childlike naivety. I really haven't got a lot of time for cynicism. And I, I also think it would be disingenuous to the point of kind of borderline greed and entitlement if I was grumpy about my job, because who, you know, I've got a wonderful job. And, and if I turn up grumpy, I say to people, if, if I'm grumpy, you give me a ticking off because it's just not appropriate. And, and, you know, you get to the sort of final day of the season and there are 10 Premier League games left. And I've sometimes spoken to people who say, you know, I'm going to the 10th best game. It's the 13th team against the 15th. There's nothing on it. What's the point? Oh, bite your arm off for 15th place, Peter. (laughs) You know, the kind of meaningless game. And I say to them, listen, there are still going to be 35,000 people paying 40 or 50 quid a time to go and watch this voluntarily because they want to. Somebody's paying you to go. Um, There's a narrative around the game. And the narrative is so important, Roger. It's so important. And, And that, if I may say so, is what I do give a lot of thought to every time. If I was a fan of one of these teams, what's the story as I'm walking up the ground, as I'm buying my burger? What have I come here for? And that, I think, is really important because once it becomes a kind of football factory, a process, you've lost the authenticity and and emotion around it. I love your self-awareness. I love your sense of gratitude. I think they're both incredibly important. Honestly, skill sets that transcend football but what skill do you believe when you look at your arc has empowered you to propel yourself to the top of the profession? Well, uh, again, I mean, you'll accuse me of some sort of false modesty, I suppose, but I, I never believe that I sort of am at the top, if you know what I mean, because I think once you believe you've done it, cracked it, then you're in real danger, because I, I am a genuine believer that pride comes before a fall. Well, you know, Roger, because you're in broadcasting, we're all of us just one moment away from catastrophe. And so, um, that, I mean, that's that's a matter of fact. Uh, so just be wary that, that your catastrophe might be just around the corner. And so be wary of it and be careful and, and be and, and protect sort of 
jealously the good fortune you have. And yet you still come on this show, Peter Drury. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've heard all about this show too. <laughs> <laughs> but your point really undermines just how much of a brutal trade being a football commentator can be. When we were kids, the commentators were really just part of the furniture. And now there's so much scrutiny. Social media means commentators are not immune to the scorn, the mockery. You know, it's always just around the corner. And I'm sure you feel it. I think you've said one person's favourite commentator is another person's pain in the neck. It's impossible to please everybody. That, that is a fact. That is a fact. And it's, it's worth remembering that too, even or perhaps especially when it's apparently going well. Because if you think you're getting a, a wave of compliments, then you know that right up behind them, there'll be at least a trickle of people who say, actually, I don't like him. And, you know, that is a fact of life. Uh, and so that, that prevents too much self-admiration, I think. But also, I, I have to say that for better and worse, that explains why I don't do any social media, because I just think that uh, it gets in your head um, and it's better not to be there. You know, English commentators, it is fascinating, especially the ones we grew up with. Traditionally very stoic, the type who see something transcendent on the field and will just say, goal! You know, Ian Dark became supremely popular in America, remarkable man, because he emotes so much. But in England, I remember after the World Cup when he became legend here for his Landon Donovan goal call. And then on Twitter, there were all the English fans were like, oh, he sounds like a kid who's watching football for the first time in his life, simply because he's so emotional and enthusiastic. Question from a listener for you, Peter. At LL Cool Kid 4, is there a difference between commentating for an English audience and for an American audience? Well, I'm going to give you a contradictory answer here, actually, Roger, because on the one hand, I would say that Darky, who I got on with very well and is one of life's great people, in that Landon Donovan moment, did precisely the thing that we began the conversation with, and that is to articulate back to the viewers what they wanted to feel and what they were feeling. And Donovan has scored! Oh, can you believe this? Go, go, USA! Certainly through. Oh, it's incredible. You could not write a script like this. He absolutely nailed that. And perhaps that was a special American moment. And what he did brilliantly was identify it, as it were, through American eyes. The contradictory answer to that is that I'm commentating on the English Premier League for the United States of America. And I believe and this was told to me fairly firmly when I joined NBC, that what America wants from the Premier League is the authentic English Premier League experience. And so the answer to your question from my perspective is no, there's no difference at all. Because if I try to talk particularly down to Americans, as if Americans needed the offside rule explaining twice a game, as if you're teaching the game rather than just reflecting it and taking knowledge for granted, I have a feeling bricks will be thrown at the screen. Have you heard our American commentators from the NFL and the NBA? Have you ever listened to them and taken anything from them professionally? No, and I hope that doesn't sound disrespectful. It's merely that I haven't been a follower of American sport. I'm just being brutally honest about my background. You know, I, I follow football and cricket, basically, and those are, those are the, the sort of core English sports. But what I would say is that you know, everybody catches five minutes of the Super Bowl and sees a bit of basketball when they're, you know, <laughs> flicking through the channels. And when I hear the American sports, I want it to be authentic American. I want a guy who shouts touchdown like the Americans do. Um, and so I suppose that's what I'm doing back. I, I want to talk about your research. You know, you said prepping for a football match. I reckon this is your quote is an entire day's work. You know, apart from the stats, the obvious what else are you researching that would surprise us? I don't suppose too much would surprise you, actually, because a lot of that is the stats, I'm afraid. And I know that's the dull answer. I've, I'm sat here with my Crystal Palace notes in front of me now, ahead of <laughs> Saturday's game at Selhurst Park, just going through some pretty dry material for the most part. Outside of the Premier League, if, if I'm doing a European game, a, a team that I've not often seen play, I have to familiarise myself with what the players look like. By, by mid-season Premier League, 
truth be told, there's not a lot you can tell people about the players, about the narrative. Everybody understands it. So again, this comes back to just reflecting it. And maybe the most important hour or two of my preparation is the hour or two that in a perfect world, in an ideal week, I go for a walk and just think about what it's all about. And the most important hour actually is the last hour up to kickoff when I get my binoculars out and make sure, and this is the number one thing, make sure I know who they all are because you're never comfortable unless you know who they are. I was going to ask you that. How do you do that? How do you identify players so quickly? Ian Dark used to memorise the colour of their boots, their cleats. How do you do it? Yeah, that's key. I mean, you know, how the, how the guys used to do it in the early days of television when they all wore black boots, I'm not quite sure. But <laughs> if you have two big centre-halves of similar size, I'll give you a good example at the moment. Uh, Newcastle have a pair of centre-halves, Fabian Cher and Sven Botman. Now, if you're right at the back of the stand at St James's Park, uh, Newcastle's numbers are horrible anyway because they're on striped shirts, and they, they both look identical. Mercifully, God bless them, Fabian Cher wears orange boots and Sven Botman wears white boots. And that, that is critical. And so I, I've reached the point of mere superstition where I do Liverpool, for instance. And we all know all the Liverpool players, essentially. Famous last words, touch wood and all that. But I, I'm not happy until I've been round with my binoculars, every one of the starting 11 on both sides, and said his name out loud to myself. And just to make sure that it's all kind of entrenched. Pronouncers, the names that you're shouting out. Derek Ray, I mean, he lives to Rosetta Stone up the commentary booth. What's your approach? Well, Derek, again, you, you're, you're bang on here. Derek is the king of linguistic precision. And uh, he speaks about 1,300 languages. Um, at least. At least. And <laughs> that's his thing. That is his shtick. And, and I really admire him for it. And I feel slightly wary when I'm in his company because I think, ah, what if I've got one wrong and Derek heard me? Um, but uh, he, um, Derek, Derek is brilliant at it. Now, he's at one extreme, and I'm very admiring of that extreme. But there is a, a gentler position which says that it's not entirely wrong, perhaps sometimes to slightly anglicise these names. And, and so... These arguments go on and on and on about how we should call players over the course of a game. And they're quite important conversations. It's only respectful and polite to try and get a player's name right. But the truth is that eventually someone gets to see the player and say, how would you like your name to be said? And they very often reply, whatever's best for you. Or in my country, we say this, but I know in your country, you say that. So that's fine. And that leaves us none the wiser, and it means we continue arguing. What's the player's name that, even when you think about it, you break out into a cold sweat? Well, this season's problem has been uh, Lucas Pacatar, who began life as Paqueta and then became Pacatar and then went back to being Paqueta and so on. He's been a major problem for us, um, but I think we're all settled on Pacatar now. On the whole, once we reach uniform, you know, it's fine. Once we're all agreed, it just takes a while for them to settle down. There was something you said in an interview that I loved. You said, I only use 10 to 15% of my research in a game. Your phrase was, I learn it, I mug it up, then I spit it all out in an hour and a half and actually forget it as soon as the final whistle goes. But the day of the game, first things first, do you have a vocal prep routine before the game? Are you running your voice through warm-ups like an opera singer? Like, oh, but are you drinking honey tea? Do you have a quick whip of the scotch? I don't. And do you know what? I think increasingly I should. I know you're sort of semi-joking, but actually I'm getting older now. I mean, I'm not old, I hope, but I'm getting older. And, and I take this instrument for granted. And sometimes in the first five minutes, I think to myself, oh, it's it's not kind of there. And if I had to shout an early goal, it, you know, I might get the old squeaky bit because it's it's not quite ready to go. Funny enough, I, I know an opera singer quite well. And he said to me uh, recently, he said, you know, you really should warm up because one of these days it's going to go snap. And uh, I think that's a very good advice, but I haven't taken it yet. You can name drop. It was Pavarotti. He's very modest. <laughs> <Peter Drew. laughs> do, do you ever feel nerves just before kickoff? Always. Always. There's not a game I don't feel nervous. We're all driven by fear of failure. And the prospect of getting it wrong makes me frightened. And that's what nerves are. 
and I know this is terribly cliched and I'm sounding like a footballer, but you know, if you're not nervous, then you probably don't care anymore. I do care. I, I want to do the best I can. So I, I think a few gentle nerves are right. Bigger the game, more the nerves, Peter. Yes. Yeah, only because I suppose the bigger the game, the more scrutinised. You know, the World Cup final, you, you don't want to make a mistake because it's out there in front of everybody and everybody cares. And oddly enough, before the World Cup final, which I did for the, the world feed, so had a sort of mammoth audience all over Africa and India and, you know, blah, blah, blah. I, I was working with uh, Alan Smith, the former Arsenal striker, who's a smashing bloke. We said before the game, you know, you get to the end of a World Cup and when you should be peaking, you're tired. You know, you're thinking, when can we go home? We've been here 33 nights. I just want to see my own front door and whatever. And the, the final comes, you think, wow, here's the final and we've got to be ready for it. And I said to Alan before the game in Qatar in December, what we want here is a nice, safe 2-0. doesn't matter which way. <laughs> and, we can, <laughs> and we can all go home where we've, we've got it right. And 10 minutes from time, it was a nice, safe 2-0. We called both the goals correctly. And I was thinking, we were almost putting our pens back into our pencil cases at the end of school. And, uh, you know, then it all went off. And and all that succeeded in doing was churning me up again because it offered another opportunity <laughs> potentially to get it wrong. <laughs> uh, that first opening speech, the opening 45 seconds or so, what Martin Tyler describes as telling the audience the smell of the game, which I love. I just love that phrase. Do you script that at all, or does it just come to you? No, the, the I have a very strict rule not to script anything between the first whistle and the last whistle. So while the ball, once the ball is rolling, I think you're mad to try and anticipate what might or might not happen. To sit in a hotel room the night before and think, if he scores, this is what I'll say, is to invite the possibility, in fact, the probability that when it happens, it doesn't quite happen as you pre-imagined it. And so you're just a little off it. You, you know, you might say, for instance, um, Kane. Kane broke the Greaves record the other day. So, of course, you've got to give some thought to the prospect of Kane breaking the Greaves record. But to write laboriously down a series of words that you would use under those circumstances would be to, to risk failing to feel the actual moment when it comes. The best example of that, of course, is the Aguero goal, where everybody might have written for the moment Manchester City won the league. But if you tried to wheel out some pre-prepared script in that moment, it would have desperately missed the mark. So anything between the whistles, I say, don't write it down. Just trust your instinct. Instincts which you might have primed, as I say, with a few thought processes. But what happens before the game, for me, is what I call a set piece. It's like a free kick. It's like a penalty. You know who's going to be where. You know there's going to be a graphic up with the teams on. You know you're going to see the referee. You know you're going to see the coach just shaking hands. You know all that. You know that you're going to be setting the, the context of the game. As you say, as Martin put it, the smell of the game. You know that. It's a given. And so just as David Beckham used to stand in front of a defensive wall and take free kick after free kick, because that's where it's all going to be to practice, I think there's no excuse not to be prepared for that moment. Your everyday descriptive powers, Peter, have you worked on them? Because they are magnificent. There's a wiry strength to Bukayo Saka. You know, Arsenal feel like an inevitable truth. Have you done exercises to come up with this instant poetic touch? Not at all. And I haven't... When, when people talk about art or style or all of that in the context of commentary, I'm uncomfortable because it it sounds a bit pseudo to me, a bit uh, potentially pretentious. And I all I promise is that I've never set out to do it that way. I, I think over the last 10 or 12 years, I've commentated on so many football matches that I've maybe gone that way slightly because of the risk of getting bored with myself. You know, there are only so many ways to say the big centre-backs headed it away or, you know, swung in a corner or shoots. And and so, you know, I, I kind of challenge myself in the moment to find a different way of doing it. Whether anyone else is bored, I don't know, but I'm bored of me doing it a certain way. And sometimes 
you, you might hear me hesitate at a game, and that is because the first one that's come to mind, I've sort of rejected. <laughs> and I'm, and I'm, I'm thinking, can I have a second option, please? Um, because the first one was too much like the one I used five minutes ago. You're good at Scrabble, Peter Drury. Well, uh, I love a game of Scrabble, yeah. And I hate it when I lose. But I do sometimes lose. Come at me with your triple word score, Peter <laughs> yes. Drury. But the, the, the voice modulation. That's really your tool. Sometimes you're laying up. Sometimes you just let it rip. Are you cognizant at all of your voice control, not just what you're saying, but how you're saying it? You're certainly cognizant, and I think variety counts for a lot. If, like a player, you can try to be a little bit unpredictable, whilst at the same time, again, reflecting back the moment, I, I think that's not a, not a bad thing. You know, some very often less is more. Certainly in the scoring of a goal, I think it's almost obligatory to to leave some time for the crowd because that's the most important soundtrack, um, you know, by a long way. Leave some time for the crowd. But funnily enough, and, and again, this might be a nuance that wouldn't necessarily occur to people, there's a big difference between the home team scoring and the away team scoring. So Liverpool scored a big goal at Newcastle last week, but their fans are up in the sky a million miles away. And whilst it's a big goal, there's actually not a big noise to ride on. So perhaps you need more of yourself then. But when Arsenal score a big goal at the Emirates, then let it go. That's fascinating. There were, there were moments during pandemic football where there was no crowd, where a goalkeeper made an outstanding save. But because there was no crowd giving you the normal goalkeeper's incredible athleticism reaction, the commentator did not give credit to the goalkeeper because they were stripped of that commentator's tool. Are, are you afraid ever that big moment, the big goal, which you are often so indelibly associated with? Do you ever fear that you won't be able to deliver? Is that something that goes through your mind at all, that fear? All the time, all the time. And very often I sit in the car afterwards and think, ah, I could have done that better. And you so often, you, again, maybe, Roger, you're perfect. But, but I, I, you know, I know that most of my big lines occur to me about three quarters of an hour after the final whistle. You know, you've missed it. That you think, oh, what I could have said there or whatever. Because that's just the way of the world, I think. And uh, listen, of, of 100 goals, of 100 goals, maybe you, you might say two or three are big, 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 big ones. Five or six, you might say, oh, I felt a bit lame about that. The remaining 90 are just goals, you know, because not every goal can be special. So how, when you're doing it in that moment, Peter, you, know, you, you have a cadence, you'll often echo sentence structure on repeat, you know, da-da-da-da, Arsenal soaring, Saka scoring, West Ham quaking, that ba-bum, 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 which I love. I mean, it's like listening to great poetry, but in that moment, are you aware of what you're saying and whether it even makes sense? Or are you just opening up the throttle and letting it go? Well, it's a bit of both. I think you've got to be slightly aware. But again, you might identify with this. You do do your best work when you let it go, when you, when you relax. Um, when you're a bit tight, it doesn't happen in quite the same way. And so if you can find a way of, of letting it go whilst retaining a degree of self-control, to prevent you from getting perhaps self-indulgent, <laughs> then, then that's, um, that's probably best all around. I, I just read a book by the music producer Rick Rubin, and, and there's a line in it. He says, the best artists tend to be the ones with the most sensitive antenna to draw in the energy resonating in a particular moment. Do you relate to that at all, that it's just you and that moment and you're just vibing off each other? Well, I certainly relate to drawing in the energy of a moment because, as I've said before, a commentator is completely reliant on the raw material available to him or her. You know, that, that I, I, I'm useless unless somebody plays a football match in front of me. And I'm also, to some extent, denuded if there's not a crowd around me. You know, though you, you referred to the COVID times, you know, that, that felt as though you were the sort of um, soloist in front of a choir who behind your back had tiptoed out off stage. And so suddenly you were exposed and there was no, there was no depth behind you. You know, it was, it was just a kind of weird nothingness. It was, a, it was horrible. 
and it felt much, much harder to express yourself without that, as it were, that sort of backing group. God, there's that moment in the great concert where the band walk off, leave the lead singer just to play a couple of, uh, uh, an acoustic set. Um, I, I want to take a minute to celebrate some of your favourite Peter Drury Premier League moments. Essentially, listeners, I'm sure you agree, if the Premier League had their own Oscars, these would probably be the nominees for Best Original Score. It's your greatest hits album, if you will, which you imagine will just be called Drury, have a really tasteful picture of you in a tux on the cover with the bow tie just undone. Peter, are you ready for a few of your favourites from, from your over, or does this make your hair stand on end? If I had any, it would. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> Price Picks is the best way to get action on sports in more than 30 states across the country, including so many of my favorites, California, Texas, and Georgia. God speed, Georgia. I'm hungry for a dozen lemon pepper wet. But back to Price Picks. We've been hearing from so many WGFOPs who are loving double P, Pablo Picasso, Price Picks, which allows them to win up to 25 times their money for the soccer season, is a reason I do appreciate Price Picks because it's simple. During the Premier League match days, I've got roughly 239 tabs on my computer open as we attempt to work out our social media, the pod rundown, the upcoming interview, you get the drift. But because Price Picks is easy to play, I'm not having to constantly click to see how my gents are doing or how many certain actions are worth. You just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projected stats and you place your entry. That is how easy it can be. You also mix and match players from several leagues across the globe. Luca De La Torre, I'm looking at you, as well as other sports like basketball oh, and hockey. Oh, the Capitals. Download the app today. Use code MIB for a first deposit match of up to $100. It's promo code MIB. Prize picks. Pick more or pick less. It's that easy. It's Rog here to tell you about a product that I simply adore. It's been a long time staple in the Bennett refrigerator, Stoke Cold Brew Coffee. Always bold, always smooth. Yes, that is the very same Stoke as in the mighty Wrexham Fortress, known as the Stoke Kairas or the Stoke Racecourse, Wrexham AFC's home. They support it. They support football, which is just one great reason to love this coffee. It is my go-to enjoy during the football calendar, essentially the opposite of Everton. And you can check out their full lineup of 48-ounce cold brew products, seven for everybody, from light to dark roast to seasonal favourites in a refrigerated multi-serve format. I tell you this, as someone whose blood type is now officially Stoke Espresso Blend, have the coffee house experience in the comfort of your own home and do it now. Stoke Cold Brew Coffee. And be sure to follow Wrexham AFC. Big love to all at Stoke. Courage. Let's get down to it. The first clip takes us back to the Manchester Derby, February 12, 2011. First place United, hosting third place Manchester City, 1-1 gridlock until the 78th minute. Our mate Wayne Rooney, that snarling ball of aggression impossible to ignore, produced what Sir Alex Ferguson called perhaps the best goal he'd seen in his then 25 years at Old Trafford. Let's roll the tape. Berbatov, Rooney... Pulled up off his knee, skulls. Nani. Rooney! Oh, wonderful! What a goal! And what a time! In what a place! What a player! Wayne Rooney out of this world! 2-1 United! Just a wonderful moment. And, and that is where, on a good day, your instinct kicks in. First of all, I'd say about that, of course, there's, from a commentary point of view, the joy is there was no doubt about the scorer. So you can only really let rip if you know who scored the goal. So that that's why a, a centre-half in a crowded six-yard box doesn't get the same treatment very often because commentators sort of peering at the screen trying to work out who got the final touch. But A, it was clear who scored. B, the scorer was the most famous player on the pitch. C, it was a fantastic goal. D, he was at home. So 70,000 people at Old Trafford. So all of the ingredients were there for letting rip. Um, and so there was no excuse not to let rip. And in fact, not letting rip would have been wrong. Uh, so I, I kind of, uh, like all commentators who were on that goal, 
I guess it was one of those moments you could be unchained. Yeah, but I love the way you're talking about it, that you let rip. Do you know, in 25 words, Peter, you folded in the occasion, the stakes, the player's legacy, and you nailed all of them instantly. In your language, letting it rip. But I mean, that is some incredible, compact storytelling. How important is it being able to say so much with so few words? Well, that, that's a really kind compliment, Roger, because that's what happens on a good day. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and, and I guess that was a good day. Somebody used, um, in a conversation with me, the phrase self-editing. And when you're sharp, you self-edit well. And actually, if you're a bit tired or you're a bit off it, you don't choose your words so well. You don't self-edit so well. And mercifully, in that Rooney moment, the, the editing process worked out fine, and I seemed to um, seem to identify with the moment and and the, the kind of the sporting deed. That goal to me was like watching a tank fly, an instrument of war doing something which just doesn't seem possible gravity wise, aerodynamics wise. But I want to talk about another great goal scorer, another great English goal scorer, a historic call from a historic moment, Harry Kane in front of his adoring fans at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, netting the only goal against a truly stunned Manchester City and in the process passing the great Jimmy Greaves to become Spurs' all-time leading scorer. Rodri, he's given it away to Hoybier. And here's Kane! He sits on Tottenham's loftiest perch beyond even the great Greaves. Spurs' most lavish scorer of all time. He has dared and he has done. Two, six, seven. Well, we did all know this moment was going to come. And for me, the most important thing, any goal, any goal, regardless of statistics, is that it's a goal. In the stadium in that moment, Tottenham fans are jumping up and down because Tottenham have just scored a goal. If the centre-half had scored, it was still 1-0 to Tottenham. So I think that's the most important thing. But having said that, just once in a while, a statistic really does matter. I, I'm bored if, if Kane's 100th goal or the 50th time Tottenham have scored in the stadium or all of that. I, I, you know, that's for three minutes later. But in the moment, it was inescapable that the statistic counted. And, and I suppose, again, it was a case of challenging myself in the moment, not to say the kind of blindingly obvious, but to find a way of referring to it with, with some sort of nuance, I, I guess. Um, and I think the perch probably hit me because because they're the cockerels, aren't they? And, he, you know, they perch. I know you don't script. Are you thinking, what might I say here? The loftiest perch line. Did I really just come to you? So... I, I, what I want to say is that I don't sit down and scribble, scribble, scribble. But as they're warming up, I might, I, well, I did. In pencil at the top of my thing, I scribbled the word perch. And, you know, so that's, that's the one. Because if you write it, it sounds like it's written. So don't write it. And the other thing I wanted to do was save the actual number until further down the line. Because the number in itself is kind of boring in the moment. So the important thing was to get the word Kane in and the word Greaves in because Greaves is, um, is a, such an evocative name. You know, he's everything about crackly black and white and English football and the grand old days and pre-television and all of that stuff. And so there are certain names which, if you mention them, in themselves do the job for you. In the World Cup, if you, if you say Pele or Cruyff, it just done the job. You know, I, I did uh, the Netherlands against Argentina in the World Cup. And if, as they're walking out of the tunnel, you you can say Cruyff and Naskins and Kempes and Tarantini and all of those guys, just say the names and you haven't got to think of any words of your own because those names conjure images that don't need words. It's incredible, the sentence construction that you'd already pre-thought, that, that level of detail, that level of offering, that level of delivering information is really, I mean, that, that, that's an incredible construct. But that the idea, the, you know, we all knew that moment would come. 
it's part of you hoping that the player breaks a record while you're on the call. There's a part of you that's hoping that you, Peter Drury, will be the one that gets the opportunity to score this forever moment in footballing history. I'll, I'll give you, again, contradictory answers here, Roger. On the one hand, whenever you go into a game where there's the potential for a statistical moment or a historical moment like that, that fear of failure thing kicks in. You think, what if he does it and I don't do it well? So you're sort of frightened of it. On the other, if I'm sat at home watching the telly and someone else gets one of those historical moments, I think, well, I wish that was me. Uh, so there is that kind of um, professional jealousy, I suppose, around it if you're not involved. But uh, again, I would stress that the important thing to remember is that Harry Kane scored that 267th goal. I didn't. I, I was just the bloke who was lucky enough to be there and watch it happen. And now, perhaps the preeminent Premier League moment, May 13th, 2012, the Etihad Stadium, Manchester City, facing off against Queen's Park Rangers, an utter gem of a game, knotted up at 2-2 until the 94th minute when Sergio Aguero gave us, really, the moment of a lifetime. Balotelli! Aguero! Staggering! Just staggering! He's won the league with 90 seconds of stoppage time to play. United's game was over. They had it. They've had it stolen back. It's just the most extraordinary scenario you could have dreamt up. Where does football go from here? Well, of course, that was the Premier League moment. And again, a huge privilege to be there. And something, of course, also you could not possibly have pre-imagined. Everybody who arrived at the ground that day assumed that Manchester City, by the end of the day, were going to be Premier League champions uh, because they only had to beat QPR and QPR weren't up to much. And Manchester City were very good and it was a given. But, of course, the assumption was that they'd win it 2 or 3 nil, and we'd all go home. And so any preconceptions were blown out of the water. Uh, QPR were 2-1 up and then I think it's Dzeko makes it 2-2. And you're thinking, wow, if they score again here, it's going to be a thing. Um, I commentated from that on that game through a very, very high gantry at Manchester City. And my first thought when Aguero struck it and it went in the net and I shouted Aguero, my first thought was, please let that be Aguero. Because <laughs> that is not the one you want to get wrong. And Manchester City, as they always have, I can't remember precisely which ones they were, but they had two or three of their you know, squat, well-balanced, dash and dart little players. And I went with Aguero uh, from a long, long way away. And mercifully, it was him. And and it is interesting um, how these moments stick to you. I'll tell you a story about Martin Tyler. You, you might or might not have heard this before, but of course, Martin, fabulous commentator that he is, did the moment for Sky Sports in the UK. And it is absolutely iconic. His long shout of Aguero. Oh! You know, everybody in the UK knows it off by heart. Four or five years later, I was on a train with Martin back from a Manchester City game to London. And we both got off at the same station, the one just north of London, a place called Milton Keynes that you'll be aware of. And we got off at Milton Keynes and we had to step through some reasonably well-oiled Manchester City fans who'd fallen asleep in the aisles on the train coming home after a few beers. And as we walked through, they recognised Martin and they said, you Martin Tyler? And they said, oh, thanks for that Aguero goal. And when we got off the train, I said to Martin, Martin, they think you scored it. I said, just to let you know, you didn't score it. And uh, he, he and, and I think that, that's kind of haunting um, because he didn't score it. And, and it's what I want to be in denial of, you know, that, that suggestion of, of the commentator's kind of proximity to the moment. Because Aguero would have scored that goal whether I was there or he was there or any of the other commentators were there, he would have scored that goal. That was a sporting moment. And we were just the sort of audio wallpaper that surrounded it. Were you, though? Were you? Yeah, there is a, there's a harmony between sight and sound. That, that, that is the communion. You know, in the 1980s, they tested... Uh, broadcasting here because there was a moment when they found commentating annoying. They thought maybe we could just show NFL games with no commentary and the viewer tuned out. There is something, and you will deny this, 
But you are the soundtrack to these memories. You may not be responsible for the goal, but you are inextricably linked to these moments. Where does football go from here? I, I mean, I, God, I love that line. That is inextricably connected to that moment. And it's a wonderful, beautiful thing. Yeah, well, it's... it's um... I suppose I can't be in denial of that. That that seems to be the case. And since time immemorial, since you and I have grown up loving sport, you know, as I did and probably you did, we've been out in the park or the backyard or whatever. We've scored a goal and we've shouted our own name. And a commentary goes with a goal uh, or with a touchdown or with a, you know, ace in a tennis match or whatever. It, it does, does seem to be uh, attractive. And, and today in the UK, we're... We're mourning the loss of one of British television's greatest football commentators, John Motson, who was with the BBC for 50 years and was a, a great guide to me and a very kind man and an absolutely iconic broadcaster. And of course, because of that, we're reflecting on all, all of his great lines, which some of which he may have pre-prepared and some of which he might not have done. You know, my, my favourite one of his, when Wimbledon famously beat Liverpool impossibly in the FA Cup final of 1988. And as the final whistle when he said, the crazy gang have beaten the culture club. That was an absolutely inspired line. So here I am arguing against myself and admitting that when it's other people, I'm prepared to admit that they're <laughs> attached to the moment. I love so it. I love where we got there. Would E.T. be as great a movie without the John Williams soundtrack? I think you can probably answer that question better than you can your own involvement. One more. Finally, Arsenal 3, Manchester United 2 from this season. Mikel Arteta's dreams are solidifying. Eddie Nketiah's star is rising. Arsenal's belief is ballooning. Their momentum is compelling. Bakayo Saka's goal was stunning. And this place is bubbling like rarely it has over the course of recent years. Rashford, Nketiah, Saka, Martinez, and then Nketiah again. Arsenal 3, United 2. Rebecca, there is your Orlando roller coaster. Peter, when you hand back to the studio and you've just landed an amazing piece of finale commentating, there's your Orlando roller coaster, Rebecca. Do you allow yourself a little fist pump when you go off air? You're aware you've just done something magical. Well, that was that was um, that was pertinent only because Rebecca was presenting a fan fest in Orlando. So I was aware if the game had been nil-nil, I was going to be handing back to Rebecca in Orlando. And so that we had a roller coaster game <laughs> just played very, very kindly into that occasion. Little fist pump, though. Little fist pump. No little fist pump, just the kind of relief that it all went okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and a joy at having had a great game. Because it is, it is remarkable, Roger, and this is not false modesty, that you get a pat on the back, off the back of a really good game. And very often, actually, you come off a gantry when it's been nil-nil and unremarkable, thinking, I'm quite pleased with the way I sustained that game. Don't suppose anyone watched it from beginning to end. It was absolutely dull. But I managed to keep going. But when you get down from the gantry after those games, nobody goes, hey, fantastic, fantastic, well done. And that's really when you earn your dollars. <laughs> when it's Arsenal 3, Man United 2, it, it looks after itself and everybody says, well done. So there you go. That's, that's how peculiar it is. And, and I quite like using that in my defence, in my final defence, <laughs> to show once again that the, the, the commentator is entirely dependent on the raw material offered. During Dell TechFest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop powered by an Intel Core i9 processor featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Your dream setup, amazing prices, and free shipping await you for a limited time only at alienware.com deals. That's alienware.com slash deals.
New Year's is now in the rearview mirror. By now, some of the excitement about our New Year's resolutions may be dying down, much like my excitement for Chelsea Football Club as we get further and further into the season. If you're looking for performance apparel that can help give you the extra push you need to keep up with your health goals, Viore has you covered. Viore creates incredibly versatile and comfortable active wear designed to look great in everyday life in and out of the gym, or in my case, on or off the tennis court. Plus, Viore is 100% off setting their carbon footprint by offsetting 100% of their plastic footprint from 2019 and beyond. They are utilizing better sustainable materials for their products, empowering your best active life. With Viore, you can feel good about the things you buy and also how they are made. Viore is an investment in your happiness. For our listeners, they are offering 20% off your first purchase. Get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet at viore.com slash MIB. That's V-U-O-R-I.com slash MIB. Not only Will you receive 20% off your first purchase, but enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75 and free returns? Trust me, go to viore.com slash MIB and discover the versatility of Viore clothing. Question from a listener at Drunk American 76. What's your favorite call you've ever made? Well, I always think that my favorite day at work was the opening day of the 2010 World Cup in South Africa. And again, nothing to do with what I said, but it was a beautiful, beautiful day. The sun shone. It was freezing in Johannesburg, actually. It was really, really cold. And, and I, I, you know, I don't want to start putting a halo on and getting all worthy and whatever and sounding quasi-insincere, but it was beautiful because black and white Africans were turning up at this game arm in arm. And given the history that that country had had, it felt a genuinely meaningful sporting occasion. The people of Africa were so excited to host the world. And then a little boy from Soweto scored a quite remarkable goal. Taylor, what do you say? It's a really good goal. It's Shabalala! Shabalala, and um, you know, bless his heart, he was he he scored the goal of his dreams. It is the the goal that still puts hairs up on the back of my neck. Paul McConney once said that if there was one song he wished he'd written, it was "God Only Knows" by the Beach Boys. Is there a famous line of commentary that you wish you'd said? Oh, now that is very good. Listen, who doesn't wish they said? They think it's all over. It is now, <laughs> which was the ultimate spontaneous commentary. And it meant that England had won the World Cup in 1966. So that that has to be the one. I thought you were going to say it was Ray Hudson saying, Lionel Messi, you could drop a tarantula into his shorts and he'd still be cool. <laughs> well, I listen, I would have been very proud to say that. I would have been very proud to say that. <laughs> That's a great line. Oh, you recently said, I'm audio wallpaper. I'm not the event in the centre of the room. I'm round the outside of the room. I mean, God, we've, we've dealt with this already. We've dug into this a little bit. Modesty is just your hallmark and your trademark. But I need to ask you, are you aware how inextricably connected to the game you are, particularly now here across the United States? Do you know, Peter, that people set your commentary to music on TikTok, which is really the ultimate tribute to modern poetry? I'm trying to answer this honestly. It's hard for me not to be aware when people notice stuff. I'm not on social media and I try, I try, I know this is a kind of oxymoron, but I try to be as unaware as possible because I don't want it inside my head. Because if I start to become a performing seal, then I won't be authentic. And, and I don't want to do a goal one way because I did it that way last week. If it works on TikTok, well, lovely. I mean, I don't understand. TikTok is what a clock does to me. I, I don't really know that thing. But I, I just want to carry on honestly enjoying articulating football matches. And if people enjoy that and want to set it to music, that's, that's lovely. 
Uh, and I, I can't pretend I haven't sometimes heard and seen these things because people send them to me. Um, not all of them, I'm glad to say. And I'm not on any of the social media where it appears. So that, that's better for my mindset. I, I have also said, and I really mean this, if I could do my job to nobody at all, I'd be really happy because I love doing it. I really don't want to be um, well-known. I don't, I, I don't want that stuff. I, I love to put the microphone down I go home to my wife and now grown-up children, so I don't often go home to them, but to my wife and switch off and watch rubbish on the telly. So <laughs> I, I crave unawareness. I'm actually surprised, Rita, that you don't come home and just uh, relax by commentating on yourself doing the laundry. <laughs> no longer. No, those days are gone. Those days are gone. Lovely story about you to close. You, you confess to an interviewer that you've kept every set of commentating notes you have ever made over the last 30 or so years. They're all in the attic, right? Well, yeah. Funny enough, I'm, I'm having building work in my house. They've come out of the attic and there was a hole in the roof while the building work was going on and water got into them. And that's a good thing because it's made me examine the reasons for keeping them. I kept them for some spurious romantic thought that one day my kids might be interested in seeing them. I've got a horrible feeling they won't, and I might use this moment to stick them in a skit, or I might not. I've, I've got that big call to make in the next two or three weeks. In the article, you're asked what you're going to tell your kids to do with them when they inherit them. Do you remember what your answer was? Probably burn them. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, there is no value at all. My handwriting is terrible. <laughs> Nobody else can read them. They're not some some of the other guys I know, commentators, friends of mine, whose uh, presentation of their notes is a glorious thing. You know, they beautifully set out. Mine is absolute chaos. It looks like you know spiders with ink on their feet have gone for a walk. Um, they they are a joyless thing. They're entirely functional. So why I wh what part of me thinks they're worth keeping? I'm not sure. Because I, I just think they're going to be a pain for my children when I disappear. You, you told The Guardian that keeping the notes is a way of saving yourself from admitting that football is so transient. So often commentators' note collections are anything but representing handwritten love letters to their craft and the game itself. I just think of the one that's in there just with that single word perch written across the top of the page. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny. I can, I can dig through them, but I can find what you, to go back to the very beginning, might call the most mundane game. And I, I can uh, look at it and I can think, oh, I remember that day. You know, so it does take me back to certain places and certain times, which is fun. Much the same as a programme collection does. Which is to end what your voice does for so many millions of people. And it's the thing I love most about football, Peter, if I'm being honest, is the profound memories that it makes, cross-generational memories, ones that bind families, friends, and supporter groups. When you think that it's your voice, Peter, that is the score of so many of those memories for so many millions of people... What does it make you feel? Small. <laughs> Honestly, it does. It does because, because as, again, we've already established, I'm slightly in denial. Um, because, as, again, I've already said, I, I, I separate myself from the event and I would very, very gladly do it to nobody. So, listen, I can't pretend it's not lovely when it goes well. I can't pretend it's not because it, it's, it is lovely when it goes well. But I'm constantly frightened of it not going well. And I, I just count my blessings, honestly. I count my blessings. I, you know, I, I get to go to fabulous football matches every week and and express myself. So it's, <laughs> it's lovely. And if other people enjoy it, I'll buy into that. Oh, Peter Drury, on behalf of the millions who just savour your craft, and it really is a craft, week in, uh, week out, Thank you. Thank you, Roger. I really enjoyed that. Courage. Hey, Prime members. You can listen to Men in Blazers ad-free on Amazon Music.
download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Yo, Trey. Yeah, Kevin, what's up, man? I was just thinking, what would have happened if Drew Brees didn't fail his physical with the Dolphins and ended up playing under Nick Saban in Miami? There's a good shot the Finns establish a dynasty. Tom Brady and Bill Belichick probably don't become goats, and Tuscaloosa doesn't become the center of the college football universe. That's a butterfly effect for real. Hey, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier. We're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Intercepted at the goal line by Malcolm Butler. Sorry, Marshawn, still too soon. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.